Welcome to India Unveiled with White Oak Capital. I'm your host, Ben Hayward, and together we'll delve into the untold stories of India's business and economic landscape. With an eye for hidden opportunities and a pulse on the vibrant markets that define the country's growth story, we'll explore the dynamic world of Indian commerce and entrepreneurship. Join me as I sit down with the top business and economic leaders who are shaping India's future. With insightful conversations that reveal the innovative and entrepreneurial spirit of Indian industries, we'll discover what makes this country such a fascinating and increasingly important destination for businesses today. So stay tuned to India Unveiled and let's lift the lid on one of the most captivating growth stories in global markets this century. In this episode, we delve into the inspiring story of Manish Tanasia, the visionary entrepreneur behind Purple, one of India's leading e-beauty platforms in the FMCG space. Join me as we sit down with Manish to uncover his journey from a small town in North India to the helm of his unicorn via a short stint in investment banking along the way. Discover how his passion for entrepreneurship ignited during his time at the prestigious India Institute of Technology in Delhi and how encounters with visionary founders in the financial services industry fueled his drive to create something extraordinary. We gained first-hand insights into India's FMCG beauty space, one of the fastest-growing segments in the country. We also learn of Manisha's unwavering dedication to solving problems and how his pursuit of changing the online beauty space, not only in India, but globally, hasn't always been a smooth ride, with many near misses and challenges along the way. So without further ado, Let's delve into the world of Purple and Manish's unique startup journey. Welcome, Manish. It's great to have you with me on the show today, and I'm really looking forward to speaking with you. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. I'm also looking forward to our conversation. So, yeah, quite excited to be here. Fantastic. And we've not had anyone really from the kind of FMCG beauty space on the show before, so I think it's going to be a unique a unique podcast from that perspective. But before we get into the business, it might be a good idea to start with your story. So could you tell the listeners a little bit more about you, your background, and how you kind of got into entrepreneurship? Sure. I mean, I grew up in a town in north of India, near the capital city of Delhi. It's a small town near Delhi. I graduated from one of the premier engineering schools in India. This is IIT Delhi. It's called Indian Institute of Technology Delhi. That's where I think my eyes really opened up. I think the best of Indian students come there to study engineering. I think that's where I dreamt of being an entrepreneur. I think there are two incidents that I can recall, uh, which probably somewhere pushed me into entrepreneurship. I think the first one was I was doing research in microwave technologies and there weren't too many microwave technology companies in India. And I told my professor, would it be okay if I set up a microwave manufacturing unit in India? I was too naive. I was all of 20 then because I just couldn't get high quality internships in India. And the second time it happened was probably when I was 22. I was in my final year. There's a phenomenal telecom company from India called Airtel. The founder of Airtel sponsored a school in my college. It's called Bharti School of Telecom. Listening to his story, I was like really motivated to start something of my own. So yeah, those were two sort of, I would say, interesting points in my journey at IIT that I remember, you know, that prepared me to being an entrepreneur. And then when I graduated, I joined financial services industry. I joined investment banking in Mumbai. 
I was being exposed to all these entrepreneurs because we were raising capital for them. And I was always inspired by how passionate they were about solving problems, how they would work long hours, not for money, but just for the passion of solving a problem. I then moved to private equity. I joined uh, Fidelity Private Equity in India. And again, I was exposed to founders working you know, extremely hard to solve problems, sometimes without ray of hope at the end of the tunnel. And I thought this was very, very inspiring. And that was something that gave way to me starting up again. And that's how Purple was born. I can talk more about what we do at Purple, but you know, over to you. Yeah, no, I, I will dig into that in a second. And again, fascinating journey and a, a very similar journey path. I think we see a lot of entrepreneurs in India cut their teeth in banking, investment banking, working with other businesses before making the leap over to launch their own thing. And we're also both alumni of Fidelity. So there we go, something in common today. But I think, as you say now, it'd be good to get a proper introduction to Purple. Within the broader context of, I know entrepreneurs always look for problems to solve, or in a lot of time, a lot of cases, hence your case in point, your microwave conundrum. What problems were there in the early days of launching Purple, or right, the nexus of launching Purple? What problems existed in the beauty space and why beauty? It's always a bit, I think listeners might find it a bit counterintuitive. And I know you have some co-founders, but a, a male launching a female-only beauty brand. So I'd be kind of really interested to learn why beauty and what problems you saw in the space. Yeah, look, uh, this was way back in 2011. And um, Rahul and I, uh, we are co-founders at Purple we were looking to sort of set up something of our own. Uh, one thing we were very clear was that we wanted to do something in the internet space. Somehow, for some reason, traffic was just increasing every month in India. More people were coming on the internet. India somehow bypassed the landline or the broadband era and moved directly to mobile. And so people were starting to access internet on 3G phones and then now 4G. Internet was still quite expensive in India from a per capita GDP point of view. The second thing was uh, that was clear to us is we will do businesses that we understand, which is, so we could have done multiple businesses on the internet, but we chose e-commerce as a business because we felt buying and selling is something we really understand. And if we can buy cheaper and sell it at a profit, then we can make the business work. So therefore, we avoided many other business models in e-commerce. And then we had to choose a category that we thought was pretty less competitive compared to other categories. When we started in 2012, and we were deciding this in 2011, we had Flipkart in India, which was doing books and electronics. We had Mintra, which was doing fashion. And we didn't want to go head on because a lot of how to succeed in life is where to play. So we thought we would play in an area which naturally had lower competition at that point in time. And look, when you're starting for the first time, you really are not thinking that far. We'll give ourselves three years and see how it goes. And if it really takes off, then we'll get more serious about it. So yeah, look, we were quite serious about it, but we said we'll give ourselves three years and see how it goes. Luckily for us, it went quite well. I wouldn't say the journey has been up and up and up. I think the journey has been like, I would say two or three near bankruptcy moments, I would say. But uh, uh, nevertheless, it's been very rewarding. It's been very, very fulfilling. I think the reason to launch Purple was we wanted to do something in the internet space. We wanted to do it in e-commerce. We wanted to pick a space that was less competitive or less cluttered. 
And then the other thing was that beauty in India, I mean, there weren't many beauty shops in tier two and tier three and tier four cities of India. Most of beauty shopping, at least I would say formal sort of, you know, organized beauty shopping was concentrated to just the four or five metro cities in India. It's not like consumers in other cities didn't want these products. It's just that they didn't have access to these products. So, for example, the city I lived in, which was 30, 40 kilometers away from Delhi, people would go to Delhi and get their beauty products and, you know, bring back home. And I thought, you know, this needs to change. And we felt like internet and e-commerce was the best way to solve this problem because offline was not the best way to solve the problem because India does not have consumption density like many other countries have. So offline as a business model does not make sense, at least did not make sense 12, 13 years ago. And so we felt internet was the best way to solve it. And hence we went after it. Fantastic. I really want to get into the challenges because I always think the challenges are where you learn most as entrepreneurs and make for the best stories. But at a very high level, I mean, I know Purple is an e-commerce beauty player. What does that mean? If you, if you really were to distill, you know, what products do you sell? Your target market, you've mentioned tier two, three cities. But if you could just talk us through the actual business, the nuts and bolts of the business. So uh, we are an online retailer. We sell over a thousand beauty brands in the country. Most of our consumers, I would say tier two and tier three income strata consumers. So I would say we really take care of, or our target customer is, I would say, middle class India. You know, typically these people earn somewhere between you know, they earn about $10,000 a year. Uh, that's the family income. We sell makeup, skincare, hair care, and bath and body products broadly. The way we have differentiated ourselves quite well over a period of time is one is because of our target audience, which is what we focus on, which I would say is more middle class India. We also, through the use of data and AI, we are able to predict what kind of products will do very well in India. And therefore, we ended up manufacturing a lot of these products with the help of like contract manufacturers in India. And so we ended up building a bunch of our own brands on the back of data. Every single product that we make is generally suggested by our data scientist in the company. And then it's passed on to the brand managers to go and get the product done. So as we speak, you know, about 50% of our revenue, so almost half of our revenue comes from our own brands. And all of those brands are targeted at like middle India or tier two and tier three India. And about 50% of our revenue comes from selling third-party brands uh, on our platform. As I said, we use a proprietary AI-led beauty intelligence suite that tells us what products to launch. It analyzes our consumer demographics. What kind of skin type do they have? What kind of hair type do they have? It also analyzes all the different kinds of beauty products that are getting launched in the world and converts all this unstructured information to structured information and gives it to our brand managers to then use it and either create products for our consumers or recommend the right products to our consumers. So that's in nutshell what we do. We are a very technology and data-led firm versus I would say a more marketing-led firm. I wouldn't say we are like poor at marketing, but I think at our core, we are massive users of data and technology and AI capabilities. And that's what we take a lot of pride in. It makes us significantly more efficient than any other business. And, you know, I would say in terms of scale, um, we are about $200 million of revenue this year. 
We're growing at a healthy growth rate of 40 to 50% year on year. Hopefully, we can continue that growth rate over the next four or five years. We're also getting very close to profitability. So I think in a quarter or two, we should be profitable. It's a good business. It's taken us 12 years to build, but it's been a very fulfilling journey. Yeah, I think, and a fascinating journey as well. And a couple of derivative questions there. What's the kind of average basket size and so typical basket size and kind of age of your consumer? Because that all feeds, I guess, into your AI modeling for product generation and all of that. So, uh, you know, typically we have about five to six million people opening our apps every month. So our MAU is about five to six million. Our average order value is closer to $12. Uh, This is when consumers add about four and a half to five products to their basket. And given that a lot of that is our own brands, our unit economics therefore are significantly better than had it been if it would have been only for selling third-party brands. And so we make very, very good cross margins. We make very good contribution margins in our business. We just need to get to like probably 20, 10, 20% higher scale to sort of break even at the EBITDA levels. But yeah, look, uh, that's the average order value. Nice. Thank you. And I guess I, I, I do now want to touch on some of those challenges because I know, as you mentioned earlier, not always being plain sailing, you've come close to not being able to continue a couple of times. What's it like in those moments as an entrepreneur with people that rely on you for their jobs and livelihoods? And, and, and what do you learn from that experience? I guess the lowest of the lows make the highest of the highs even better. I think in our early days, there were three key challenges. I think the first challenge was to Apart from convincing ourselves that this was a worthy business to get into, I think the first key challenge was convincing beauty companies to sell online in India in 2011 and 12. I think most companies used to feel like beauty needs to be sold offline and it needs a lot of touch and feel and a lot of that stuff. I think it's turned the other way now where most beauty companies in India are shutting down offline counters and actually going more and more online. Many large beauty brands in India, almost 50% of their revenue comes online and only 50% revenue comes offline. I think the second challenge was to convince investors to invest in a vertical e-commerce company. Typically, they would ask us this question, you know, tell us where has it worked anywhere else in the world and we would typically not have answers. There aren't any parallels in the US or Europe, at least at that point in time, there weren't any. And so it was really hard to convince people uh, to put money into a vertical e-commerce business. Everybody thought it would be a winner-take-all market and horizontal e-commerce platforms would have like 95% share and everybody else would would be decimated. And I think third one was, the difficult part was convincing employees to join you because nobody had seen such a business earlier in any part of the world and therefore convincing them was really hard. To your question on how is it like in your lowest of moments when you're running out of capital, I think it's quite stressful. I can describe to you how it is. Every day you wake up and you realize that you don't have enough money in the bank to honor the checks that you need to give. And so you need to wire some money every morning into the company to make sure that you can sustain. It's not a happy place to be. I mean, it's just disturbs your everyday working of the business. Uh, It puts undue pressure on your teams because maybe they need to honor payments which they're not able to do. I think what has helped in all these times is, I think one, we had just told ourselves that we won't give up because of these things. Time will change and sun will shine again. 
And I think in a couple of these cases, what has also happened is some of our angel investors and early stage venture investors have come forward and, you know, given us money, which I think was just purely on trust. I don't think the risk return in any rational way made sense. But I think these people just gave us money when we needed it. Some of them were very nice that they opened, uh, like they gave us like open OD facilities from their bank account. So I think I can't thank them enough because they probably saved us when we could have been dead probably a couple of months later or a month later. So I think there are always these, some of these people who come to your help and and I think life goes on and uh, I am very happy that they've made hundreds of X on their capital. But uh, I don't think it was that slam dunk way back in 2012, 13, 14 or 15. Yeah. And coming on to some, it's a nice segue into, into your cap table and your, your, invest, your own personal investor base, because you have got some really impressive investors, global investors on, on, you know, who have invested in Purple. There are a few derivative questions of this, I guess, which we can get onto. But what are those conversations with global investors who've come to you to invest in, in your business? What, what do those conversations look like? I'd be fascinated to dive into a bit of those. And if you're happy to disclose names or if you're able to disclose names, it would be fantastic for the listeners. And then I guess a broader question is you're right at the heart of the India startup VC scene. And there seems to be, as ever, a lot of goodwill and noise and positivity around the India story at the moment. And is that how you read it from being on the ground as well? Yes. So to your first question, what are the kind of conversations we are having with or VCs or private equity funds? I think 2021 was a very uh, different year from what 2023 has been. I think 2021 was a year when we were raising about $100 million and there were so many private equity funds who came to us and said, take 200 million and go ahead and buy five more companies. Somebody almost alluded to the fact that take a billion from us and go ahead and buy five companies worth $200 million, right, each. So fortunately, I don't believe in those business models, so I had to refuse it. I know these people run large funds and there is deployment pressure. and But I think for us, it was just hard to accept so much money. So I think entrepreneurs... At least we've chosen to attract investors that we think align with our value systems. And our value system was that we want to build our business responsibly, even in the most bullish of times. We were okay with a moderate increase in valuation rather than a meteoric increase in valuation that we could have gotten at that point in time. But I think in hindsight, it was a great choice to make. And hence, in 2021, we chose Kedara and Premji to invest in us. Kedara is a Fantastic fund from India. Premji is actually Mr. Azim Premji, who's the founder of Wipro, his family office. He's a big investor in India, you know, almost like two, three billion dollars of AUM. And then last year, we had uh, RDI invest in us. This is Abu Dhabi Investment Authority. I think last year onwards, things had started to become softer, where everybody was asking all other entrepreneurs about profitability, which is what we always hopped upon. So it was like our time for shining. I mean, it's something, it was music to our ears. So yeah, we could raise capital from RDI last year when most firms in India would not have managed to. I think the VCP scene in India is very, very active. I think in 2007, there were probably seven VC firms in India. And I think in 2023, there might be like more than 100 VC firms in India. I think there are 300 incubators in India, like at the college level who are incubating startups. So 
India has seen a dramatic shift in favor of entrepreneurship like nobody had imagined. Our government of India has also played a key role in it. Our government has a Startup India mission where they are granting hundreds of millions of dollars every year to these incubators to fund companies. So yeah, look, I think the scene is quite buzzing. I think there is a little bit of wait and watch that's happening on what's the right price to invest in a company and in 2023, what's also the right business model to back. And so I think the stars of 2022 and 2023 has left everybody more intelligent than what they were probably in 2021. But look, India is sitting on a lot of dry powder. It's just waiting to get invested, you know, over the next three, four years. So whether you look at Sequoia, which is now called Peak 15, or whether you look at so many other funds, I think there is probably another 10, 15 billion dollars waiting to be invested in India, only in VC space, and then multifolds of that on the private equity side. On the funds side, I would say I'm not privy to many funds performance because I think it's private to them, but I'm privy to, uh, like I would say, Kedara's performance because I end up attending their AGMs and I am blown away by the IRRs they make. So I am very, very happy to have them as shareholders on our cap table and I hope we can beat those IRRs. The other firm that I am privy to is called Bloom Ventures. I think they will also do very well. A 150k check in purple will return them probably $100 million. So, you know, so there are three funds in, in who invested in purple in the early stages. There is Bloom, where I think we will return like some 100x or something. There was Ivy Cap Ventures, where we returned, where we got like 6% of the fund as investment, but we returned 130, 140% of the firm. And then... The same happened with JSW Ventures where they invested, I think, a million dollars and we've returned or we are about to return about 22, 23 million dollars to them. So it was a 10 million dollar fund and we we should be returning 2x of the fund size. So, so like those funds would have made great IRR. Yeah. You've yeah. got some happy investors and it sounds like a, a great time to be an entrepreneur in India. I know it because we see it and we see as you allude to, all the big boys circling India to find their next purple or, or whatever business it is. So, Yeah, look, I think it's a great time to be an entrepreneur in India. I think India in nominal GDP terms is growing at 15% year on year. So as a business, even if you do moderately better than GDP growth rate, you should be growing at 20% year on year. I think if you are smart, then you can probably grow at 30, 40% year on year. And 40% year-on-year means doubling every two years. So I think it's it's I think it's great time to be in India. India is building a lot of infrastructure, which it has never built in the past. We have built some of the best digital infrastructure in the world. Whether you look at digital identity in the form of Aadhaar, whether you look at UPI for payments, I think the government has been very progressive. We've also had a stable government uh, for last 10 years and hopefully it comes back into power next year. I think it's been all like positive from a business point of view. And dragging it back to the business a bit now, so honing it back in onto the micro level. I know beauty is a, is a space and you've got competitors here, Nike and, and the sorts like that. And they're all, beauty is, uh, even in the Western world here, it's, it's uh, a, a business that requires a lot of interaction with influencers and celebrity and endorsements. How have you done it? Because I know you've taken a slightly different approach at Purple. How have you guys used social media and, and the like to kind of grow the business? 
I think brand building and media landscape in India has changed quite dramatically over the last 10 years. So I think just last year, digital advertising has taken over TV. So digital advertising spends in India are now higher than TV. I think almost 36-37% of all advertising in India is digital. Probably another 35% is TV. And TV continues to be still big. And then print and all are like probably 10-11%. Radio is probably 1-2%. or 2%. So now that given, you know, and I think YouTube's MAU in India would be like 500-600 million. So, you know, the entire country is watching YouTube. I think India has like 700 million people who have access to a smartphone and 500-600 million people watch YouTube. So I think our consumers are on YouTube. Our consumers, subset of our consumers are on Instagram and Facebook. So I think therefore creating content on YouTube was our primary mode of advertising. And so what we do is we have an AI-led model where we select the right influencers or key opinion leaders to work with. It's a very smart model where it enable, it, it analyzes all the content they make. It summarizes it for us. So you can convert that video content to audio, to text, to summary, all using AI, probably by spending like 10 cents on this analysis. And then you can also create your own proprietary algorithms to understand how good the product integration in a video is. And so today we work with over 1,000 influencers every month in India. We Our content reaches close to 500 million video views a month. And that's been our primary mode of, of advertising. It's a very, I think if your content can go viral and then I think your cost of customer acquisition comes down really well. And that's what we've been focusing on. You know, every two months come out with something viral that really resonates with people and a lot of people end up just watching it and it helps us drive our business. In the numbers, whenever I get into conversations like this, the numbers in India just blow my mind in terms of, you know, just the sheer volume of people online and, and interacting with Social yeah, media. look, but I, I, but I wouldn't say that all of them can be shoppers. I think we have till date about 7 million consumers who have shopped with us. I think the ceiling to that is like probably like 50 million consumers. I think that's where our, the per capita thing won't make sense beyond that unless India's GDP per capita. I mean, it is growing at like 13, 14%, but I think we will have, I mean, if you were to ask me today what my TAM would be like, I think it will be not more than 40 to 50 million people. Well, we've still got a long runway of growth ahead. And, and I guess my final kind of comments, questions would be, what is next for Purple? I mean, an astonishing journey so far over the last decade. Seems like you've stabilized the business now. You've got great roster of investors who are on your cap table. What's the end game? Is it a listing? Is it selling the business? Or do you just want to keep going? And and, and, and a lot of entrepreneurs never give the answer away there. But I, I'm curious to know what this is all for and where you want to get to. I think the first milestone was to get to profitability at certain scale. I think that we should get to in like a couple of quarters. I think the next milestone is, you know, we've started focusing on our cash flows. So just making sure that we run a much smarter business from a cash utilization and an ROCE point of view. So we are really looking at where are we deploying cash and, you know, how can we make our business more and more efficient and high ROCE business. 
I think uh, the near-term goal would be probably in next two and a half, three years would be to go public. I think going public puts a lot of responsibility on us to deliver returns to retail shareholders, not just institutional shareholders. But at the same time, I think it opens up huge opportunities for us from a capital raising point of view. I think public markets in India are many times larger than private markets in India are. It also makes your shares and your ESOPs a very tradable currency. So recruiting recruiting colleagues and you know employees becomes much easier. I think it also gives a way for our investors to exit whenever they wish to sell some of their holdings. So yeah, look, I think I think a near term goal for us is when we are able to demonstrate good ROCs in our business, we would love to go public. Awesome. And finally, you don't see a market outside of India. You think there's plenty of growth within India for Purple's products and, and technology and the platform? I would say, like, I think only businesses that get valued really well and have good defensive moats are businesses that have high market share in select geographies. So I would say our near-term focus, I would say for the next two, three years is get more and more market share in India get to a position of strength and you know maybe after that yes we can go outside India but I think as we are about to break even and we are obviously at a certain scale I still think our market share in India is quite low and I think we need to up the game on market share in India and once we get to like a sizable market share where we are able to really build good moats around our business then you know we will look at expanding outside India but yeah for the next three years that's not really what we're planning Awesome. Well, look, I really look forward to to watching the purple story uh, in the years to come unfold and uh, wish you the best of luck with everything and, and can't thank you enough for coming on and speaking with us today, Manish. And congratulations on, on the amazing business you've built so far and look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you, Ben. And it's been a pleasure to be on the podcast. Hopefully it's useful to your listeners and uh, I also look forward to staying in touch. Absolutely. Good luck and, and, and bye for now. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to India Unveiled with me, Ben Hayward. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave us a review, a rating, and make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you might get your podcast fix to be notified of our upcoming episodes. Join us in a couple of weeks as we continue to explore the fascinating world of Indian business and entrepreneurship. Until then, stay safe and keep exploring.